You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Thanks, Kim. How we doing, y'all? All right. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Jake, and I mostly teach at our downtown church. And every once in a while, I get the opportunity to teach here. It's good to be with y'all. Thought I'd give, yourself, give y'all a quick introduction to myself. Uh, uh, have a picture of my family just right up here. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. Uh, So we have three kids right now. There's Caroline, our oldest. Uh, All of them are in Kid Town right now. We have Caroline, who's seven, Sawyer, who's about to turn six, and then we have Kate, who just turned four. Uh, So it is very loud in my house, as I'm sure many of y'all can relate to. And the reason I also put that up is we have been in the process of adoption since April of last year. And this Saturday coming up, the birth mother is getting induced, and so we will be adding another member to our family. And I say that to say, uh, if y'all are in life group this week and you're talking about the sermon, just uh, pray for us as it's about to get wild and crazy all over again. Uh, I'd really appreciate that. So if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 30 that Kim read for us. And this week with our Fruit of the Spirit series, we are talking about the fruit of kindness, which in our time, I think is a very popular characteristic right now going on in our culture from bumper stickers that I've seen in our city that read, make America kind again, to signs in people's yards that say kindness is everything. It's even all over our TVs in beloved TV characters right now. I think about a couple years ago on Apple TV, the world was enchanted to the fictional Midwestern football coach gone soccer coach named Ted Lasso who seemed to disarm people with all of his dad jokes. And uh, he would always seem to love on the people who were the most grumpy on the show, who continually forgives people even though they've wronged him. To where I remember it was met with lots of popularity and critical acclaim. One article that I read said that Ted Lasso has sparked a kindness revolution. But if Ted Lasso is not your speed, it seems like you can't really talk much about kindness and examples in popular culture without at some point bringing up Fred Rogers, which I don't know if y'all growing up, if Fred Rogers was your speed. He was not mine. I was a kid. I liked, you know, dinosaurs and explosions and all that. And Fred Rogers didn't really fit the bill. But a few years ago, there was a documentary that came out called Won't You Be My Neighbor, which has anyone seen that documentary? I feel like that is almost like mandatory viewing. Just like sit down, watch it, have yourself a really good cry session for a while. It is just beautiful. That came out a few years ago. And then a year or two after that, there was a movie that came out uh, called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood starring Tom Hanks, America's dad, where he was basically playing Mr. Rogers. And then once again, the world just fell in love with this character. And something our culture doesn't quite emphasize about Fred Rogers is that his kindness radiated from him as a byproduct of his Christian beliefs. Something they don't really emphasize in the movies was this guy was a very much an adamant follower of Jesus. 
And whether it clicked with people or not, whenever they saw that man interact with people, they were seeing this fruit of the Spirit. And this is why people were drawn to this guy, was this fruit of the Spirit, this kindness that seemed to radiate from him. And my hunch is the reason our world is so drawn in and compelled by this quality of kindness is that we are living in an increasingly polarized, intense world. It feels like we're kind of all just drowning and suffocating in bitterness and anger and rage towards people from the other side. And that whenever we see glimpses of kindness show up, it's like a breath of fresh air to our souls that we so desperately need. So as we examine this fruit of the spirit, what does it exactly mean? And how can we tap into this supernatural kindness made available to us? Ephesians chapter four, verse 30, if you wanna read along with me. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So according to this, what does it mean to be kind here? We're supposed to see the connection in verse 32 and chapter 5, verse 1. We're supposed to see the command to be kind and to be imitators of God as these logical connectors. So if we're called to be kind and we're called to imitate God. The conclusion is that God is kind. We're supposed to imitate God. This means God is kind. And because God is kind, he is by necessity the most kind being in all of the universe. And if that's the case, that God, that God is the kindest being in all of creation, then that means he gets to define what it means to be kind. He becomes the basis for kindness, so our starting point has to be what the scriptures say about God's character if we're to understand what kindness is all about, which if we all had to like get into a room and sort of open up our Bibles and try to understand what God's kindness is all about, my hunch is a lot of us and me included would probably go to like those verses that give us the warm fuzzies, right? The ones that go great on a pillow, that go gray on like some framed art in your house or something. Some of these feel-good coffee mug verses. However, because God is kind, he gets to define what it means. And we can't select the passages and verses that sit well with us. We have to take all of scripture into account when we think about God's kindness for us. Because you can't separate the kindness of God from the rest of God. You can't separate the kindness of God from the love of God. They're interconnected. They work together. And you can't separate the kindness of God from his mercy. These things like work together as part of who God is. And at the same time, if you press that further, you can't separate the kindness of God from his holiness. You can't separate his kindness from his justice. All of these work together. And my hunch is the verses that highlight God's justice and judgment probably aren't going to be going on any like pillows or print art anytime soon. But we have to take all of that into account when we think about God's kindness. Paul in the book of Romans talks about it like this. He says, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So God is kind. It's a part of his nature. And there's a reason for him being kind. According to Romans, it's so that we are led to repentance. So that is the aim of kindness, 
The aim of kindness is repentance, to lay down our pride, to lay down our ego, to submit our thoughts, our emotions, our everything under his lordship. So God's kindness, the way he treats us, has this goal in mind for us to repent and to come under his lordship. And at the same time, God is kind even to those who don't repent. And as a result, God, who is full of love, will ultimately give people over to what they really want, whether that means life and eternity with him or life and eternity without him, because God is personal and he's actively building his kingdom with people who want to be a part of what he's doing. And in God's judgment, he lets people choose the path of repentance or not. And the fact that he treats us all with grace and lets us choose is an extension of his kindness. So all that to say, if your view of kindness does not factor into God's judgment and his desire for everyone to repent and to experience life and fullness with him, then you're talking about something else. Maybe what you're really talking about is niceness or tolerance or inoffensiveness. But if we don't have those biblical concepts in mind, then it's not kindness according to how God defines it. So I say all that to say, when we get to this word, kind in Ephesians 4.32, why does Paul feel the need to say that? So at this time, the book of Ephesians, it's this young church plant in the city of Ephesus. It's this very small group of new believers, and it's made up of these two people groups that are at total odds with one another. You have the Gentile Greeks over in this section, and then you have the Jews in this section. And if you were to like walk into that church on any given Sunday, you would feel the tenseness in the room, and you would probably think to yourself, all right, at what point is like the second Baptist church of Ephesus gonna start? Because like, there's no way this group of people can get along. If you were to think about people who are at opposite sides of the spectrum in our culture, these are the Jews and the Gentiles. When it came to race, when it came to class and status and power and politics, material goods, even sexuality, Romans and Jews were at complete opposite sides. And now on top of that, all of all of them have become Christians and all of them are part of a church family together. So what do you do with that when people are at total si different sides with one another? So Paul addresses this in a really sneaky, smart way. He doesn't start out the letter to the Ephesians by saying, all right, look, I know y'all think differently about politics. So, you know, let's work through all of that so we can get on the same page. He doesn't go through any of those hot button issues first what he does instead is he starts by sharing with them a common story that they all have. So in Ephesians 1 through 3, he talks about how God created all of them, how God blessed them before the beginning of time. He talks about how the spirit is now in all of them. He talks about how because of their sin, all of them are spiritually dead and separated from God that they were under the bondage of Satan and that God had to send his son Jesus down to live the perfect life they never could, to die the death they deserve, to conquer death. It was only through that that they now have salvation in God. And it's only through that that they are able to be family together. The dividing wall between them is now torn down to where by the time you arrive at Ephesians 4, and Paul talks about how the people are to treat each other. He's already spent all of that time in those first three chapters talking about this common story that they all share. 
He's gotten them all on the same page to help them see their backgrounds, their identity markers, their status in society, their view on any number of things. None of that is what's most important because if it was, then the division between them would be justified. But the biblical story that he spent so much time in Ephesians 1 through 3 sharing is something deeper and truer. And because of that, they have this shared story together. They have this shared humanity together. And when you see that, it enables you to be kind because you realize underneath it all, you're in the same boat as just about everyone else on the planet. So when we come across that word kindness in verse 32, we can't separate that from the overall aim of what Paul is trying to do. To practice kindness, biblically speaking, is to demonstrate the sort of behavior, the same sort of behavior God demonstrates towards us this charitable, gracious attitude towards someone else in order to lead us to repentance. And at the same time, how do you, how can you do that? You do that by recognizing that you share a common story with every single person you meet and encounter, regardless of their stance, regardless of their background or whatever. Those things have their place in the conversation, but that's not what is ultimate. So when the world wants you to pick a side on any number of issues, and let that be the defining marker about you and your identity, biblical kindness stops that dead in its tracks and recognizes every single human being is an image bearer of God, just like you. And so no matter where one stands on a topic or issue, everyone is a human being that deserves dignity and value and respect and worth. When the world wants you to fit into their story and say, hey, you're either for us or against us on any number of issues, biblical kindness refuses to think that way. And instead, we choose the better story that sees that everyone is part of this and everyone is impacted by sin, just like you. They all have their own issues that they are personally dealing with, just like you that everyone probably has those grouchy days where you feel like you woke up on the wrong side of the bed, just like you. And in a world of 24-7 news and social media hot takes and cancel culture, where you make one false step and your life is totally blown up with no hope of redemption, biblical kindness is able to see the common story that every human being is caught up in and we can offer forgiveness and reconciliation When the world wants you to find your ultimate identity in your relationship status or the type of job you have or how you voted recently or your sexual orientation, biblical kindness sees the common humanity in everyone and responds accordingly that everyone needs to experience the life-saving news of Jesus, just like you. Everyone needs to experience grace and understanding, just like you that everyone needs someone to befriend them and love them and tell them about Jesus, that there is life in him and that they ought to repent of their sin, just like you. Jackie Hill Perry puts it like this. She says that there is a kindness that only the spirit of God can produce in us. It goes beyond being nice and cordial. It's more miraculous than a forced smile. Beyond our natural ability to construct, kindness reminds the world of God and how Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's kindness towards us. He gave him without our asking, and the benevolent God models this still. When we do the same, we help folks imagine what heaven is like. 
And so when you're able to see what's going on underneath it all, when you're able to practice this supernatural kindness that's made available to you, you can act accordingly. You can show this convictional warmth with every human being, a charitable empathy towards other, to have both truth and love, to stand by what you believe in, but to do it in such a winsome way towards the other, because like God, our kindness is fueled out of a desire to see people trust Jesus as Lord and to repent of their inward rebellion, because that's what Jesus has done for us. Now, before we move on, a couple of clarifiers to this, okay? Biblical kindness is different from niceness, okay? It's different from niceness. To treat someone politely on a surface level, but without the motivation of seeing them come to repentance. So you treat them nicely on a surface level with no goal of them seeing Jesus in you or you pointing them to Jesus, to which living in the South, I think we see a lot of that, right? A lot of the counterfeit of kindness, a lot of niceness, a lot of bless your hearts, a lot of putting on a smile when they're around, and that's that. And if that's what you're doing, that's not kindness. That's niceness. Secondly, biblical kindness is different from passivity. I think many people assume kindness means you never step up or take action, but that's not it either. Because like in Romans 2, we see kindness has a goal towards it. Kindness has the goal of seeing everyone repent and trust Jesus. And that necessarily requires that people repent. But how can people repent if no one ever speaks up and steps in and lovingly offers a word of correction. But that's what biblical kindness is. It steps in. Because if God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, then our kindness should too. And this means an extension of kindness inevitably, inevitably means at a certain point in your friendship, you might have to tell someone at some point that you believe they are wrong because love and truth work together conviction and warmth go hand in hand. To show warmth without conviction is really indifference or apathy. To ignore truth is to show unlove. So when someone thinks or believes or lives in a way that is contrary to the biblical picture of flourishing, you can respond in one of three ways. You can respond in polarization, with polarization, which is no charity at all to say, hey, I'm on the right side with this. This is what's most important, and I will determine your value based off of how you pick which side you pick. Therefore, if you don't pick my side, you are the enemy, and there's no possible way we can get along here. You can certainly respond that way, sure. And then there's niceness, which we talked about earlier. To offer warmth and charity, but with no desire for the other to repent to say, hey, I disagree with you, but let's not talk about it. I don't want to jeopardize the friendship. I don't want to make things weird or awkward. So I'll just smile and I'll stuff it down to where eventually give that enough time and you don't eventually have any true meaningful relationship with the other person to be, because to have true relationship requires that at some point y'all talk through things, especially things you disagree with. But if you avoid that, then you have no real relationship with the person. You're just practicing niceness. And then there's biblical kindness, a charity towards repentance that sees the common humanity you share with the other person. And you say, I love you and I disagree with you. And because I love Jesus and I want Jesus for you, let me show you what that means. Now, to wrestle this to the ground, what does this look like, practicing kindness with your relationships that you encounter day in and day out? 
I want you to think about, imagine in your mind, don't say it out loud. I want you to think about the person that really grates you, the person that really gets on your nerves. Just think about it. Don't say it out loud. Don't make eye contact with that person in the room, okay? Maybe it's someone you know who believes virtually everything you disagree with. Sure. Maybe they post things on social media that just get under your skin. Or maybe it's a family member who is draining for you in every way imaginable. Maybe it's a coworker who gets on your nerves and is critical of you around others. Maybe it's someone in your life group who annoys you and always seems to say something to where you just inwardly sort of roll your eyes a bit. Maybe it's the person in our church family who sinned against you. Or maybe it's the person in our church who you've noticed this blind spot of sin in their lives that impacts them and impacts others. Maybe it's the leader or the supervisor who has authority over you and says things you don't like. How can you respond in biblical kindness? Because in those moments, you can respond in one of three ways. You can respond to the other by being withholding in the relationship. You can internally stew over how deeply you disagree or dislike them as you, as you resolve in your heart that you can't possibly get along with the other because of what they've done or what they believe or what they stand for. So you cut them off from any sort of relationship. Maybe you just bottle that up and keep it to yourself, or maybe you disclose this to other people so you can form your own little team against the person. And this would be an example of polarization. And it's not walking in the spirit. It's walking in the flesh. And this is all too common in our world. I don't know if you've like opened up Twitter or Instagram lately. Like the world so much, especially over this weekend, is so polarized and angry with each other but that's the way of the flesh. This is all too common, and it's a failure to see our common humanity, and it's to treat people as less than human. But then there's the more subtle version of this. You can respond to the other by perhaps ignoring it, by perhaps pushing it down within you, so you inwardly acknowledge that things are off, and you still smile when they show up and when they're around, and you engage in small talk, but there's still this like odd relational elephant in the room. And over time, you never talk about it. And the relationship grows cold and distant. And this would be an example of what I call niceness. This also fails to see the common humanity you share because you're not moved enough to have the conversation, to ask questions, to step in, to take action, to model Jesus in the relationship. And then there's option three. When you walk in step with the Spirit and you realize no matter what, you share a common story with that person, that God was kind to you and God led you to repentance. And now God has called you to practice the same kindness towards others, to see God in you so that they would be led to repentance. So you smile when they're around and you look them in the eyes and you draw closer, not further, and you respond accordingly and you ask the questions and you engage in the conversation. This is what biblical kindness is to look like. So for the person in your life who is draining or annoying, biblical kindness might look like saying, you know what? It's really not that big of a deal. I'm sure I've got my own quirks and annoyances and God has shown so much grace to me. And now God has placed this person in my life so I can show grace to them. And in the process, I can show Jesus towards them. And for the person who is critical to you or who has wounded you, biblical kindness will probably look like confronting and forgiving most likely several, many times over. It's not just a quick fix, but it will take a process. But 
You're freed up to say, if Jesus doesn't hold my sin against me, who am I to hold their sin against them? So God, help me by your spirit to show truth and love to this person because you've made them and you love them. Help me to see them the same way that you see them. And if that sounds totally impossible and difficult on our own, it absolutely is. But the good news is when we walk in step with the spirit, he produces this supernatural kindness within us. And our world right now is craving, I would say, more than ever to see this fruit of the Spirit alive and working in us. So as we wrap up our time, I just want to ask, what does that look like for you? If you're a follower of Jesus, who are the people God has placed in your life to show this radical, supernatural kindness towards? And you're going to be talking about this together in your life groups this week. What does it look like to practice supernatural kindness? What does that mean in the things you post on social media? What does that look like in your conversations with the people who are most annoying to you? But to wrap up, I want to share with you one story of a Christian embodying this fruit of the Spirit. In his article, Kindness Changes Everything, writer Stephen Whitmer talks about how one woman named Rosaria Butterfield became a Christian. And prior to her, conversa- uh, her conversion, she was a professor at UPenn. She was in a committed lesbian relationship and even led gay pride rallies and gay pride marches within her city. And at one point, she even wrote an opinion piece in the local paper bashing a group of Christians. The article goes on to say about this story. It says, after publishing a critique of an evangelical Christian group in her local paper, she received an enormous volume of polarized responses. Placing an empty box in each corner of her desk, she sorted hate mail into one and fan mail into another. Then it says she received a two-page response from a local pastor. She says, quote, it was a kind and inquiring letter, she says. It had warmth and civility to it, in addition to its probing questions. And I love these next couple sentences. This is great. She couldn't figure out which box to put the letter in, so it sat on her desk for seven days. It's like she had this box of niceness and polarization, and it's like, oh, I don't know which box to put this person in. Like, what do I do here? She goes on to say, it was the kindest letter of opposition that I had ever received. Its tone demonstrated that the writer wasn't against her. Eventually, she contacted the pastor and became friends with him and his wife. She says, quote, they talked with me in a way that didn't make me feel erased. Their friendship was an important part of her journey to faith. So for Rosaria, what changed the trajectory of her life was interacting with kind Christians, people who loved her enough to reach out to her to open up their home to her, to share meals with her ongoingly for weeks and weeks and months and months at a time, and people who loved her enough to share their convictions, to reach out to her, to ask her questions, and to say winsomely, I love you, and you're my friend, and because I love you, you have to know I disagree with you, and this is not what Jesus wants for you. And for Rosaria, what blew up her categories was when she encountered kind Christians and she thought, whoa, what is going on? Because I've had this straw man picture of what a Christian is supposed to be, but you're totally blowing up my categories because you disagree with me, but you're not treating me like an enemy. And you're telling me I need to repent, but also you're my friend and you're doing it in a loving way. What is going on? 
and what moved her from a place of polarization to a place of wanting her to follow Jesus was the up-close personal interactions of Christians who exuded kindness, not niceness that simply smiled and never smoke, and never spoke up. And at the same time, I'm sure Rosaria didn't know it at all, but she was actually seeing the whole time glimpses of Jesus radiating through these people. And I'm sure for that Christian couple, they probably had this verse in mind that we looked at, to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave us. Therefore, be imitators of God. So I don't know who God has placed in your life right now. I have no idea. I can't imagine how difficult that might be for you right now. But I do know that you are called to imitate God in those actions and in those relationships. And if God in his infinite depths of mercy showed you such radical grace by disrupting your life, then by his spirit, you can do that for others. And if God who sent his very son into the world to sacrifice and forgive you all your sin and failings and mess ups, then by his spirit, you can model that same forgiveness towards others. And if God in his radical kindness led you to repentance, then by his spirit, you can do that for others. And my hope is like Rosaria seeing that letter, people will see you and know that you are a Christian and based off of the way you interact with them and treat them, that they will have no idea what box to put you in because you are demonstrating a kindness that is so supernaturally powerful that they are so drawn to. And in a world drowning in bitterness and rage and anger right now, you just might be the very breath of fresh air that that person needs.